you know, the, with a car, you got to change the oil, rotate the tires, you know, so forth and so on. With mental illness, you have to have a safe care plan, diet, exercise, good night's sleep, meditation, medication. And then there's a, you know, you need a, you need a safety plan. If things go sideways and you buy a car, what do you do? You get a AAA membership. You got a spare tire in the trunk. You got, you know, flares in the first aid kit. Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I interview thoughtful, inspiring, and influential guests who are creating their legacies and contributing to the greater good. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist and fellow Zestful Ager. And this podcast is my way of bringing some light into the world, which is feeling pretty dark and broken right now. Our music is courtesy of Judy Banker, a previous guest on Zestful Aging, and Judy is also an eating disorder treatment specialist who clinically supervised me in Ann Arbor in the early 90s. And little did I know that 20 years later, we would be collaborating on a very different kind of project. Find out more about Judy on her website, judybanker.com. Well, as always, I've got my little loyal Jack Russell Sparky right by my side, so let's begin. We have a great interview for you today, extremely important and thought-provoking. We're going to be talking to Frank King, who was a writer for The Tonight Show for 20 years, and now he's a suicide prevention speaker and trainer. Depression and suicide run in his family. He's thought about killing himself more times than he can count, and he's fought a lifetime battle with major depressive disorder and chronic suicidality, turning that long, dark journey of the soul into five TEDx talks and sharing his life-saving insights on mental health awareness with associations, corporations, and colleges. Welcome to the show, Frank. I'll do my best to be inspiring. I will. Okay. Well, we're holding you to that. Um... Let's talk about, as you call it, the elephant in the room and this paradox between being a comedian and talking about the darkest subject possible, which is suicide. How do those two things go together? Well, I think comic is a good choice. Uh, If you think about it, ever since the time of the court jester, the comedian's job has been to speak truth to power on behalf of the powerless with humor. I believe I speak truth to the power of mental illness on behalf of those often powerless in its grip with humor. Number two, I believe where there's humor, there's hope. Where there's laughter, there's life that nobody dies laughing. And number three, as you mentioned, depression, suicide run in my family. My grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. My great aunt died by suicide. My mother and I found her. I was all of four years old. I screamed for days. And I came close enough to killing myself in 2010. I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like. So I... I think that qualifies me to talk about, at least not as a clinician, certainly, but as someone with lived experience. And the comedy is just, it's a way, well, there's a reason they call it comic relief. It's not jokes. It's funny stories from my own mental health journey that I pepper the keynotes with to give people a little, there's a psychological principle, apparently, that if you have something serious, something really dark to tell someone, then if you give them a little sort of comedy sherbet to clear the palate, and then Mm -hmm. they're ready for the next chunk of, you know, of suicide, depression, mortality, morbidity, whatever it happens to be. Mm-hmm. Do you think that most comedians that you've met in your long career also suffer from depression? We have a podcast called the Suicide Prevention Punchline for that very reason. It's uh, mm-hmm. Comedians tend to kill themselves frequently, more frequently than the average person. And I think comedians and creatives and entrepreneurs, I think I'd, I put them all in the same category I see that's that's really interesting you know I've watched uh, some of your TED talks you have a lot of them out there you've done a lot of work in this field and I was curious because you talk of course a lot about the genetic predisposition you talk about suicide running in your family the horrific way that your great aunt died and um, I'm wondering about your understanding about depression and suicidal thinking or you know are are you a nature nurture kind of guy or what's your what's your theory i believe nature although being that close to my great aunt's 
suicide at age four, I would say that probably up the chances that at some point in time I would consider taking my life. But I believe I'm, I'm hardwired for it mm-hmm. familiarly. Uh, the good news is I believe, and I did a TED talk on this called The Evolutionary Advantages of Mental Illness, that I believe my, my depression thoughts of suicide are simply the flip side of my comedic ability, stage presence, timing, imagination, creativity. It's a package. It's a, it's a, it's a disability and an ability or a disability and a capability all wrapped up in one because I can teach you to do stand up. I can teach you to write stand up. What I cannot teach you to do is process information the way my brain does. Mm-hmm. I, I always, I always thought everybody heard, you know, they all, we all hear and see the same things basically. And I figured everybody else was, you know, processing the way I did and I just happened to be beating everybody to the punchline and that turns out that's not I, I had a couple of experiments and it turned out that's not true They're, they don't they hear the same information or see the same information but the processing is entirely different so what's your filter what what how would you describe your perspective that's different than somebody else who may be hearing and seeing the very same thing well I was on a plane in Atlanta, getting ready to leave Atlanta on Delta. Flight attendants generally out of Atlanta, very southern, because that's a Delta base. It was a day after the FAA had said, you can use your iPhone or iPad on takeoff or landing if you have it in the airplane mode. So the problem with the flight attendant at this point is she could do the, or he could do the, usual safety instructions in their sleep. But this is not written down anywhere, so they've got to make up something to tell us about this new rule. So she goes through the oxygen mask, floor breath, lighting, seat cushion. <laughs> she gets to the the business about using your iPad or iPhone on takeoff or landing, and she goes, ladies and gentlemen, due to new FAA regulation, and you can almost hear her thinking. <laughs> then she gets inspired. Due to new FAA regulation, if you have small equipment, you can continue playing with it. Well, <laughs> I'm the only one on the plane laughing. I'm doubled over. My, my uh... seat... My seatmate thinks I've lost my mind. He goes, what? I go, let's review. Before I can review, she comes back on and goes, if you have large equipment, you're going to have to shove that under the seat in front of you. So I'm down on my knees. So everybody on the plane heard the same piece of information. Uh Only only I processed it in that comedic. uh, Comedy comedy is a a game of connections, connecting Mm -hmm. to two things that sometimes have nothing to do with one another. That's where the funny is. And comedy oftentimes is in the anomaly, the Mm -hmm. what's wrong with this picture, what doesn't belong. I see. And so that's what comedians are good at doing is spotting the anomaly. And we're great noticers of things. I was uh, during the last recession. I never thought I'd ever use that phrase, last recession. (laughs) I tried out to be a police officer with a variety of departments in the state of Washington and did several oral boards. And one of the questions that kept coming up was, what's the connection between comedy and policing? I said, well, we are both essentially paid observers. We are great noticers of things. Things Mm -hmm. other people walk by and never give a second thought to. I see. Tickles my brain somehow. I stop, turn around and think, now what is, something is wrong with the... You know, that's, that's the connection between policing and comedy is that, that ability to, you know, when I'm walking through the grocery store and there's a couple on the other aisle next to me, I'm, I'm actually paying attention to their voices consciously or unconsciously. And I can hear tension in their vocal cords. I can hear when things are going sideways and say to myself, you know, that's not going to end well. Uh, whereas most people just wouldn't even pay attention to the fact there's somebody in the next aisle. Mm-hmm. So it's just a, a matter of, and I, I firmly believe that the processing is a function of my wiring or miswiring, depending on how you look at it. Because mm-hmm. you know what, the, what gave me the idea for the TEDx was pretty much everybody I've ever met who had a mental illness who wasn't completely dysfunctional had some kind of superpower. And I said that to my sister who lives with anxiety and major depressive disorder, and she goes, "Superpower? We're not the X Men. We're the Xanax Men." <laughs> Lovely, lovely, beautiful. So this is what I'm thinking about. Uh, By the way, I totally know what you mean about, as a therapist too, right? We're taught to have our antenna out for things that are not just 
the, you know, the, the spoken word that were like, oh, you know, that doesn't feel right, or that body language doesn't match with those words and stuff. So I know what you're saying. What I'm curious about is, so having this filter is really helpful, this observational superpower, but then you go too far, and you're disabled, and you can't use it. Well, I've written some of my best material when I was, you know, with men, oftentimes depression, anxiety present as anger. Yes. And I've written some spectacular material when I was really angry. (laughs) So, you know, there's a, there's a power, there's an energy to depression, thoughts of suicide. And I, rather than fight it, which I did for years, and I used to say I battle depression, which is not accurate because battle implies I can win, and I can't. I can tie, like Mm -hmm. North and South Korea, uneasy truce, or I can die and lose, but I can't win. So there's a martial art called Aikido, which is, they call it a soft martial art because you don't go at someone with energy as they're coming at you with energy. Mm -hmm. In Aikido, you blend you move offline and you blend with their energy and then you take their balance. And the idea is nobody gets hurt. So I try to take an Aikido approach to the energy behind depression to blend with it, to continue moving forward. As uncomfortable as it is, it has a great power, you know, an energy. And so I try, I try my best to use that energy in a positive fashion, keep putting one foot in front of the other, if that makes sense. Does it have an identity in your mind? Like, you know, say you've been doing well and not feeling, uh, having suicidal thoughts. Are there little inklings or little hints or whispers that, uh uh-oh, it's about ready to pounce? What are your first um, sort of observations that, uh uh-oh, it's about ready to uh, uh, expand or or, um, increase? Well, actually, the the two conditions, major depressive disorder and suicidal idea, chronic suicidal ideation or, uh, or chronic suicidality are separate entities for me. One does not necessarily, mm. yeah, the, the thoughts of suicide as an option are always there. Mm-hmm. The, the story I tell them in my TED Talks is my car broke down and I had three thoughts unbidden, get it fixed, buy a new one, I could just kill myself. Mm-hmm. That's It's always an option on the menu mm-hmm. as a solution. The depression, and I've been most, and then the depression on the other hand, I've been most depressed at some of the best times in my life. Condo paid off, money in the bank, bookings, married to a wonderful woman, living in San Diego, lovely place, but just wretchedly depressed. Mm. So it's not, it's not generally not situational. A situation can trigger it. Like in 2010, business dropped off 80% in the speaking business. We lost everything in a chapter seven bankruptcy. And that pushed me to the edge of, of killing myself because I had a million dollar life insurance policy. And like a lot of people at that time, I thought, you know, the world would be better off without me. My wife will be heartbroken, but she'll no longer be broke. And so, so the two are different for me. The, 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 the way I describe the suicidal ideation is it's sort of like a mental Muzak. You know, when you go into the grocery store, there's always music playing in the mm-hmm. background. Mm-hmm. You don't always notice it unless it happens to be a song you really like or a song you really dislike. It's sort of like DOS running under windows. It's always there. Mm-hmm. It just every now and then, sometimes it's small. Through. Yeah, sometimes the smallest things, wife gets mad at me, well, you know, forget it, I'll just kill myself. Uh, not a serious thought. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna. As a matter of fact, the suicidal ideation, suicidality keeps me alive in an odd way because I know if the pain gets too bad that I have a way to end the pain. And so if it weren't for my chronic suicidal ideation, I probably would have killed myself a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Strangely. How is it? How is it with, in your relationship, in your close relationships, like with your wife? Does she already know how things are going, or do you say it's been a hard day? I mean, how do you guys talk about that? Well, you asked earlier about how I know it's happening. I can feel myself cycling down. What happens? What, what it feels like is. The simile I use is, it's like somebody is slowly turning up the force of gravity and turning down the contrast and color in the world. Mm-hmm. And my cycle was about a, about a three-day cycle. Down one day, flatten out, up the 
third day. And I began taking medication at age 60. And all of a sudden, it was a two-day cycle. And it didn't happen as often. And my, <laughs> I thought after, when I finally realized what the medication was doing, I thought to myself, why did I wait so long? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I treated myself with something called SAMe. Mm-hmm. Buy it over the counter, buy it at Costco. It's good for mild depression. And also good for your knees and your liver, by the way. Um, but by the time I got to 60, my wife goes, look, just get, just ask your doctor for something. Just tell mm-hmm. me the situation. And now every doctor is supposed to ask you those two questions when you go in. Anytime you see them, those two gateway questions. And if you answer yes to one of them that you've been hopeless in the last two weeks or whatever, they're supposed to ask you seven more. Well, my doctor had never asked me those questions. So when I said, I think I may need some antidepressants, he says, why would you say that? And I told him about the, my car broke down and I had three thoughts. And he pulled out his prescription pad immediately. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and fortunately for me, the first choice, the one he chose, uh, worked for me. And it's a relatively small dose. Uh, he offered to bump it up. And I said, no, it's just enough to take the edge off. I'm fine. Um, why but, did you wait so long, Frank? Well, you know, the Sammy took the edge off for about 15, 15, 20 years. It was enough, mm-hmm. 400 milligrams first thing in the morning mm-hmm. to take the edge off. You know, and, and it would I would cycle. Every couple of months, I would cycle down for a couple of days and cycle back up. And, you know, I just didn't feel like I needed a, a pharmacological, you know, a, a psychotropic solution. Mm-hmm. And probably wouldn't have done it then, except my wife was like, you're 60. I mean... Just ask him. Maybe there's something. Maybe it'll make a difference. Who knows? And, of course, once I had it, <laughs> two weeks in, she noticed a difference in my personality. But didn't say anything. She wanted to see if I noticed. Three weeks in, my first thought was, oh, my God. Here's the thought I had, by the way, which I hadn't had since high school. It came up. It bubbled up by itself. I like my life. I've got a good life. I do what I want, what I love for a living. Beautiful wife, house, wonderful animals. I mean, I have a good life, but I hadn't thought that thought, I like my life since high school. Mm-hmm. So that's how I knew it was working. Oh, goodness. <laughs> 45 years. Yeah. So, uh. but, you know, I mean, doing what you love for a living helps take the edge off. Um, I mean, I've been doing stand-up comedy for 34 years and change, and that's exactly what I believed I should be doing. But, you know, my fourth TED Talk was Suicide, the Secret of My Success. Mm-hmm. where I said, look, I'm, I'm married to a wonderful woman, but not the right one. I'm selling insurance, great business, not for me. And I wasn't going to open mic night, which is where I thought I belonged. And so I, re- I realized sooner rather than later, I was going to kill myself. And then my second thought was, well, what have I got to lose? I divorced my wife, quit my job, try comedy. If it works, great. If it doesn't, shoot, I can still kill myself. <laughs> and I've met a goodly number of people, entertainers, creative types, and entrepreneurs had the very same thought process. Living a life they didn't think they belonged in, had a dream, thought they should be pursuing it, came to the conclusion, man, if I don't change something, I'm going to kill myself. And then, Mm. you know, it's an amazingly powerful position to be in because I had absolutely nothing to lose. I could put it all on one roll of the dice Mm -hmm. and see what happened. Hmm. Talk a little bit about writing for the Tonight Show. Were you feeling depressed throughout your twenty-year tenure there? Well, you know, like I said, my depression comes um, last used to last three days. Now it lasts about two. Used to happen about every other month. Now about every third month. So I'm generally my my days, good days, far outnumber my bad days. That mm-hmm. that's one of the myths I believe of. The people believe about depression, thoughts of suicide. That if you're depressed and having thoughts of suicide, it's that way 24 7, 365. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had in 2014, right before, two weeks before my first TED talk, I was in the woods with the dogs. I've had, I, in addition to a sense of humor and depression and suicidality that I inherited from my family, I also, my dad had a bad heart valve, so I had mine fixed. He was D died at 40, I had mine fixed at 39. And my mother had the cholesterol of a deep fat fryer. So I had a double bypass. I was taking two statins. And still, I'm in the woods with the dogs, half mile up a logging trail. I've got T-Mobile, so I don't have cell service. And <laughs> that never fails to get a laugh, by the way. Mm-hmm. And I had a heart attack. Mm. In the woods with the dogs, by myself, no cell phone. And I tell the story when I speak to illustrate that if I had been in a bad place that day, if I had wanted to die by suicide, that would have been a very socially acceptable way to do it. Oh, I, I see. I you would have s- just let it 
let it take its course. Yes, and only the dogs would know that I chose. When they found me, they would see the signs oh, of a heart attack death, and they would say, oh, wow, he had a heart attack. He couldn't get out of the woods. Why didn't he phone? Oh, T-Mobile. Oh, man, too bad. <laughs> So, uh, and, and people always ask me as I'm going back down the hill with the dogs, what I'm really worried about is the dogs because there's a logging road we turn off of to go to the trail and these logging trucks move through there way too fast. Mm -hmm. So if I don't get the dogs back into the vehicle, they're going to be wandering around that road till my wife figures out that I have, you know, I'm not home. And so we're like the Marine Corps when it comes to animals. We leave nobody behind. So I was, mm, I was, right. I was hell bent on getting, at least getting as far as the car and getting the dogs in. If I drop dead, then fine. But as I'm coming down the hill, people ask, what are you thinking? I mean, about your relatives? Were you, did you see a light? Did you hear voices? I and mean, think about your wife? You know what I was thinking about? Two weeks from that day, I had my first TED talk scheduled on you know, the suicide prevention. I was coming out at age 52. Nobody knew that I was depressed and suicidal. My wife, my family, and my friends, nobody. And oh, I, my goodness. Oh, yeah. And, I, well, like a lot of people in that position, we never tell anybody because, you know, A, we don't want to burden people. B, if you tell a clinician that you're having thoughts of suicide, you get a three-day all-expenses-paid vacation with no belt or shoestrings. Uh, there's no, uh, I have to correct you, it's not all-expenses-paid. <laughs> yeah, well, Unfortunately, you pay quite a bit because insurance won't always pick that up, but yeah. yes, I understand. So I never told anybody, so I'm, I'm coming out, I'm going to do my TED Talk. Uh, it's a suicide prevention TED Talk. The premise was start the conversation on suicide because as I was creating it, I realized that even though you know, at the time, one person died every 15 minutes in the U.S. of suicide. Nobody talked about it. But if you mention it, everybody's got a story. Uh -huh. Everybody. So I'm going down the hill and I'm crying because I, I, I'm thinking if I could have just gotten to that TED Talk, think of all the lives I could have oh, saved. Oh, my and, goodness. And I'm not going to get to do that. So, uh, so but, the uh, meaning behind that, really wanting to share that experience and offer that up and help others. Yeah, because what happens, Nicole, is almost every time I speak, well, every time but one that I've spoken and told the story about my car breaking down, get it fixed, buy a new one, I could just kill mm -hmm. myself. Mm -hmm. At least one person, sometimes more, they have chronic suicidal ideation and they do not know it has a name. They just feel like they're some kind of freak because of the way their brain works. Mm -hmm. And the relief when they find out, I had a young woman at a college show come up. She goes, thank you for your keynote. I said, you're welcome. She goes, I got to tell you, it made me weep. I go, How did it make you weep? She goes, remember your story about the car, you know, get it fixed, buy a new one, you can just kill yourself? I go, yeah. She goes, I've had those thoughts for as long as I can remember. And I didn't know that had a name. I, I just thought I was some kind of freak and all alone. And when you said that out loud, I realized for the first time in my life that I was not alone and I wept. Mm -hmm. That's my ROI. That's my why mm -hmm. right there. Mm -hmm. Oh, it, goodness. So it's so satisfying for you to have other people have some um, awareness about that and, and, and incredible relief. Yes. And my hope is that I've steered them far enough off the path to suicide, they'll live a normal life. And not too long after I had that thought, I I was waiting for a young man to pick me up after a show at a college. It was dusk, starting to snow, and I could hear a river in the distance. And I, I was thinking about all the people that came up after these shows that maybe I steered off the path to suicide. And I said to myself, oh my goodness. I'm like that character, George Bailey, and it's a wonderful life. Uh -huh. I've been shown what these people's lives would be like if I were not there to let them know they were not alone. So, and Nicole, my second thought was, oh, great. Now I can't kill myself because uh -huh. I'd, take, I'd take all these people with me. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so that's, there's a protocol, as you well know. Uh, are, you, are you depressed? Yes. Thoughts of suicide? Yes. Do you have a plan? Yes. I got, I've, got, I'm a, I've got half a dozen plans. Which one do you want to hear? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Do you want to hear them all or just the ones that involve you? <laughs> oh, goodness. I know. That scares, that scares the therapist. Um, but I think there should be two more questions that would save lives. The next question should be, if somebody's has a plan, but it's not particularly detailed, you know, doesn't really have time, place, method. My next question to them would be, well, are you going to kill yourself? And, and my, and then if they said no, then my last question would be, okay, then tell me why not. 
Make them give voice. My friends, my family, my animals, my whatever. Whatever reason it is, I want to hear reli- it. People will often say my religion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My religion. So that, 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 and I think if we, if we allowed people to give voice to their thoughts of suicide without mm-hmm. worrying about getting... I met a guy in San Diego. I'm doing a comedy thing. And we're talking at the table and ask, they always ask, do you do anything besides stand-up comedy? Yes, I do suicide prevention speaking, so forth and so on. And I describe my chronic suicidal ideation. I'm on the way to the bathroom. This guy catches up with me. He goes, Frank, I've got it. I go, what do you got? He goes, I have that. I didn't know it had a name, that chronic suicidal ideation. He goes, and I want you to know, I've never told anybody that. And gentleman's 69 years old. He oh. said, I've never told anybody that, including my therapist. <laughs> Oh, goodness. You know why? Because of the 51, 50, was it 5150 in California? 5150, the, the statute and the law that says if you mm-hmm. tell your therapist that. They have, they, it's their mandated. Yeah, so mm-hmm. if we get, if we, I think if we could allow people to give voice to their thoughts of suicide without worrying about, because, you know, people, when, when somebody dies by suicide, I often hear, you know, they never said anything. Why didn't they reach out? Why, you know, I, I had no idea. Never gave me any hints, mm-hmm. which we mm-hmm. both know is not true because what it is is you, nine out of ten people do give hints in a week leading up to a suicide. You just have to know what you're listening for. What are you listening for? Why, why don't you, can you describe to our audience what to look for and what to listen for? Well, with depression, I would look for has trouble getting up in the morning, rallies in the afternoon. Um, the other big one is letting their personal hygiene go. Usually put, well put together, but their hair's a little dirty, their clothes a little dirty. I speak to dentists because they have a high rate of suicide, mm-hmm. and I talk about their clients, their patients. I said, look, if you get a patient who comes in there and the hair's a little dirtier than usual, clothes are a little, you know, unkempt, and they be usually really good at taking care of their teeth, and you realize they haven't been taking as good care of their teeth, that could be an indication. Also, eat too much, can't eat, sleep too much, can't sleep. Now, with, with thoughts of suicide, writing about suicide, Googling suicide, suicide appears as a theme in artwork, um, they're they're going around. They're getting their affairs in order. Of course, collecting the means, whether it's stockpiling medication or buying a weapon. The um, giving away prized possessions because they want to make sure they go to the people mm-hmm. they want them to go to mm-hmm. when they're gone. And if they give away a pet, that's kind of top of the pyramid of the prized possessions. Mm-hmm. And here's a counterintuitive one that scares me. It is they're depressed for it seemed like ever. And then all of a sudden, for no apparent reason, they're happy. And you're happy because they're happy finally. Mm, mm-hmm. But it may be they've chosen time, place, method, and they know the pain is coming to an end. And that's another myth, by the way. When somebody dies by suicide, somebody famous, I get calls, Facebook messages, texts from my friends and family. It's like they all got together. And they're wondering why Anthony Bourdain or Kate Spade you know, died by suicide. And so they go, well, Frank's suicidal. He'll know. So... <laughs> You're the representative. Yeah, I'm the international representative for suicidal people. Uh, mm-hmm. And they say to me, why did Anthony Bourdain want to kill himself or Kate Spade want to kill herself? And my answer is, chances are, neither one wanted to die. They just simply wanted to end the pain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, I, I believe it's all about pain. Same, same thing with drug addiction, uh, alcohol addiction, or substance use disorders. You know, guy, guy, I used to work the cruise ships, and gentlemen came up to me, and they always have a a meeting, uh, an AA meeting on the ship every day, friends of Bill. And he said, Frank, do you know the connection between drugs, alcohol, and suicide? And I said, well, I know the obvious connections. He goes, well, here's here's what you may not, you may have never thought about. Both suicide and substance abuse disorders oftentimes are about killing the pain. Mm-hmm. One's just more long-term mm-hmm. solution than the other. So, so that's 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 what when I do my keynote, that's what I teach. I teach QPR, mm-hmm. question, persuade, refer. It's a curic- curriculum, and then there's one called Working Minds out of the University of Colorado, and it's suicide prevention as a workplace health and safety issue. Mm. And the woman who taught me that is my co-author Sally Spencer Thomas, Doctor Sally Spencer Thomas, mm-hmm. and Sarah Gare, who is a therapist who teaches QPR to first responders, suicide prevention to first responders. She wanted to buy a book for the men, mostly men, that she teaches, and she went to Barnes & Noble, couldn't find a book on men's mental health. So she went on Amazon and couldn't find a specific book 
you know, all about men's mental health. So we have created a four book series. First one came out in March. Second one comes out Father's Day. It's an anthology. We mm-hmm. surveyed men and we asked them what kind of advice they wanted from whom and how. And they said, look, we want advice from men who have had particular struggles. Uh, I want to hear about their struggles. And then we want to hear how they're coping. How did they claw their way back? Uh-huh. So each story, drugs, alcohol, bankruptcy, divorce, each story is 1,500 words. First 500 words, things are good. Second 500 words, things were really bad. Last 500 words, here's how I'm coping. And, and around that, we wrap clinical information, resources, exercises, just good, solid advice for men. Uh, and we were going to write one book, Nicole, but it became 1,000 pages. Because uh-huh. we had 48 guys, 50 guys, plus all that information. So it's now a four-book series called Guts, Grit, and the Grind, a Mental Mechanics Manual. And the whole idea is we made it look like a car owner, a car owner's manual. Oh, that's brilliant. Yep, that's with car metaphors. That's what the ladies called me. Sarah and Sally got together, and Sally knew me. And she said, let me call Frank, see if he'll make it funny and see if he'll put the car metaphors in. So they call me. They said, we're writing a book on men's mental health. We want you to make it funny. I want you to put the metaphors in. And I said, wait a minute. You two ladies are writing a book on men's mental health? Don't you think you might need, oh, I don't know, a man? <laughs> a man! So I said, look, make me a co-author. Let me voice the books for Audible. I just got done voicing the first one. It's up on Audible now. Uh, let me voice it for Audible, and I'll make it funny. And, you know, it's there's a lot of car brain metaphors. If if men took care of their cars like they take care of their brains, you better buy a bus pass because, you know, don't you wish the man in your life had a check engine light? It goes off, he goes to the mental mechanic, and the guy goes, Bob, no wonder you're depressed. You're two quarts low on serotonin. <laughs> so that's kind of how it's – plus, with a car, you know, you're a therapist. You know that you should always have a safe care plan because, you know, things – and the, basically that's car maintenance, essentially. Uh-huh. The, you know, the, with a car, you got to change the oil, rotate the tires, you know, so forth and so on. With mental illness, you have to have a safe care plan, diet, exercise, good night's sleep, meditation, medication. And then there's a – you know, you need, a, you need a safety plan. If things go sideways and you buy a car, what do you do? You get a AAA membership. You got a spare tire in the trunk. You got, you know, flares in the first day kit. I can so, hear how much fun you had with this. Oh, my God. Oh, um, my goodness. I can just hear you being like, and then we could do this, an engine light, and it's all clicking. Yeah, airbag, seat belt. Oh, you know, I, can, I can just imagine you were off to the races. Yeah, we had, we had a good time. And, and we, you know, it's not, it's not jokes, but it's just funny little twists and turns. Uh, there's one... Play on words and yeah. all of this. There's one thing where they're listening, you know, questions men ask themselves, and it's, you know, it's all very serious for five or six. The last one I put in, boxers or briefs. So <laughs> it just comes out of nowhere. Yes. And then, That's great. That's the anomaly you were talking about earlier. Exactly. You're reading along and all makes, and then, then, you know, there was another one where I, hobbies or something, you know, car, working cars you know, uh, woodworking, metalworking. And the last one is ferret racing. (laughs) (laughs) So I can see you, this was like a playground for you. Yes. What a beautiful thing to combine your two major skills on, you know, the, the comedy writing and also making these books that, you know, are going to continue to share this message of mental health. I just imagine it must have been deeply satisfying. Because, because you know, eight out of 10 people roughly who die by suicide in the U.S. nowadays are men. And mm. men tend to, you know, it's male, male toxicity, masculine, male toxicity, masculine toxicity. Anyway, mm-hmm. we're, you know, big boys don't cry, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's not just mental. I mean, it's physical as well. It's, you know, we, they, they don't get the colonoscopy. They don't take the PSA test. You know, they get chest pains. They're sure it's a burrito. Um, men tend not to reach out mentally for mental health or physical health, certainly for mental health. And so we're hoping that, again, premise of the book is to start the conversation make it mm-hmm. my goal our goal is to make talking about depression thoughts of suicide as easy as talking about sports or the weather now speaking of that let's think about what 
I'd like to hear your opinion about why we, and this is pre-COVID I'm talking about, have experienced a real spike in um, in suicide. And, and you can correct me because I bet you know these numbers, but it's a 30% increase. And is that in the last five years? I think it's since 2012, I think. Okay. Yeah, and I think part of it is uh, what they call deaths of despair. Mm. Because most of the men in that eight-man group out of ten who die by suicide are, are 45 to 54 and generally Caucasian. And what's happening is the good blue-collar, middle-class income jobs have been disappearing very quickly. Mm-hmm. Manufacturing, some of the, you know, only about 12 to 15 percent of the manufacturing went overseas. Contrary to popular belief, the other 85 to 88 percent was taken over by AI and robotics. I see. So there are folks that are just regular folks who were doing manufacturing jobs are now out of a job and out of an identity. Exactly, because men tended to attach their identity to their jobs. And, you know, you got a high school education, you went to trade school, went to work in manufacturing, and you had a good job with great wages and benefits. Mm-hmm. And now you're 50, 52 years old, and cast adrift, and maybe though you know there's a retraining program, but how long is it going to take you to get back to where you were financially? So there's some shame. You're you're yeah. thinking shame, humility. Yep. Okay. Stigma then leads perhaps to drinking and uh, other substance use disorders, and so they, that's they're called the I guess in the vernacular the deaths of despair. Mm-hmm. Their their identity is you know is gone. And so, and uh, construction is the number one occupation at risk for suicide. And people always ask me, why construction? Well, again, mostly male. Uh, and males who are rough and tough. Mm-hmm. You know, nail driving, saw running, you know. Mm-hmm. Again, the kind of guys who are not going to reach out. That's a broad brush, but generally are not going to reach out for help, especially mentally help so that's what i understand too from clients that i've treated is that it's of course physically demanding and so you're often going to be using some kind of pain relief something uh-huh. uh and there's drinking and 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 that it uh, pairs with it as well is that what you're finding well you know opioids 65,000 deaths, 66,000 last year. And we don't know how many of those were accidental overdoses and how many were suicides. Mm-hmm. I believe overprescribed. Uh, you know, you go to the hospital for one thing and you come out with an addiction to opioids. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, I think they're way overprescribed when there are alternative medications that are not near as addictive. And fortunately, Nicole... Yours truly happens to be allergic to opioids. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah, I That is fortunate. I throw up like Lindsay Lohan after a three day weekend. And <laughs> and so I can't. I and they have to give me something else. it's something to have to do with my inner ear, I think, because I, I get I have work cruises, but I get wretchedly seasick. Any kind of motion for whatever reason. And mm-hmm. and when you take an opioid, there's a little bit of that sort of dizzy and it's just enough for me. I spend the night in the hospital after a colonoscopy. Nobody does that mm-hmm. b- because I've thrown up so hard. Oh, goodness. So it's kind of a good thing. <laughs> I, guess, I guess so. So let's, let me uh, think with you because of our audience are mostly folks, not all, but middle age and post-middle age. Some are parents, some are grandparents, some don't have kids. But if you have a suspicion that a family member or a child or a grandchild or whatever is suicidal or depressed, what is your advice to those guardians or parents? Well, I think you should learn the signs and symptoms of depression, thoughts of suicide. And I tell you, a great place to learn it for very little money is, I bet you know about this, it's um, mentalhealthfirstaid.org. I don't know about oh, it, my but Lord. I'm going to put it in the program notes. Yeah, there are there are there's an adult course and for looking for signs and symptoms in adults. There's a youth course for the same thing, and it's eight hours. And normally they charge nothing, zero to maybe twenty five dollars, 
And the only reason they charge $25, as far as I can tell, is they provide lunch. I see. Okay. And, and they give you a binder, and it covers everything from major depressive disorder to non-lethal self-harm to bipolar schizophrenia schizoaffective wow they send you home with that so let's say you've got a grandchild and you've you you think perhaps they're depressed you can turn in the in the ring binder to depression and it'll, there'll be a list of symptoms and signs and then there'll be advice on you know how do you Mm-hmm. Uh, the second thing I would do, if, if you ever you believe you have a child with a mental illness or a family member with a mental illness, is go to uh, your local chapter of NAMI, National mm-hmm. Alliance of Mental Illness. They have a mm-hmm. chapter in just about every county, although yep. I'm speaking in Nebraska next week, on Thursday, actually, virtually. And I mentioned NAMI. They go, yeah, Frank, here's the problem. There's one <laughs> NAMI office in Omaha. There's a lot, there's a lot more Nebraska than that. So... Uh, but NAMI has classes for families. I've got a friend who has a child who's schizoaffective, and it almost mm-hmm. broke up the family until he went to NAMI, took a 12-week course on how do you how do you live with help find you know how do you help someone live with someone who has schizoaffective disorder mm-hmm. and it saved the marriage, saved the family because mm-hmm. they have families. National Alliance of the Mentally Ill, I believe. Mental illness. Mental National. illness. Yep. yep. And they've got peer to peer counseling. They got family to family counseling again. Mm-hmm. So. Other families going through the same thing. You realize you're not alone. You share resources. Mm-hmm. So that's what I would. That's where I send people. Look, go take the mental first, mental health first aid course. Mm-hmm. Not going to cost you much. What you do is you put in mentalhealthfirstaid.org. They have you put in um, a radius, like 25 miles, and your zip code. And it'll tell you every class they're going to th- throw in that zip code in the next six months, and they're everywhere. Uh-huh. So that's it's a great, great way to. It's a great mental health 101 mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's a that's a great resource and i will put those both of those in the program notes i wanted to ask you frank what is the legacy that you would like to leave well i'm, I'm hoping at some point nicole and this is audacious that somebody says to me hey what are you what are you doing these days you still uh, speaking on suicide prevention no nobody's killing themselves Mm. <laughs> my, uh-huh. my goal is to, is to work my way out of a job. I see. I see. If we could just bring the rate down, if we could stop, you know, mm-hmm. now it, like last year was 47,000 people, one every 11 minutes. If we could just begin to bring that down. Mm-hmm. And teens, it's, 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 it's gotten far worse since 2012, um, young people, uh, you know, uh, middle school, high school. Yes. Even elementary school. I'm doing a fundraiser virtually on the 26th of June for um, some foundation in Portland, Our City Cares. And they reach out to high schools with information for the students and the parents in the Portland area, Portland and Vancouver, Washington area. And, and because because it's, you know, it's the rates of self-reported major depressive disorder and thoughts of suicide in young people has spiked, uh, in part, by the way, because since 2012, it turns out young people are spending about 40 percent less FaceTime. I'm not talking about Facebook FaceTime. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about in-person FaceTime mm-hmm. with their face peers. Face to face, yeah, yeah, hanging out at the mall like we did when we were kids. Mm-hmm. And the loneliest people in the country at this point, from all I've read, are not octogenarians. You know, people in nursing homes. It's mm-hmm. it's teenage girls, women, mm-hmm. teenage young women, are the loneliest. And I, I can't say there's a connection with the smartphone. I believe there's a correlation. I can't believe it's a coincidence that you know, mm-hmm, all that time mm-hmm. staring into the phone. And all of the comparison, too, that they don't look like Kim Kardashian, and they think that that's, you know, sort of something that people can aspire to and, and achieve. And bullying. And I, I didn't, mm-hmm. I had an incident in February where I was bullied online and it changed my perspective because I figured I'm 63. How, how do you mm-hmm. bully somebody online? <laughs> and I got bullied. I got death threats. I changed my phone number. I deactivated three social media accounts. Um, people were publishing maps to my house. So, you know, helpful Google, Google, biz, Google my business page. It gives you a map right to my house. That's right. Uh, so, I now have a whole new respect. And here's the thing. Those people who bullied me, I will never meet them, chances are. But if you're a teenager and you're in high school and you, the people that are bullying you, you have to go back day after day after day. Mm-hmm. And when I was a kid, when you left school, you left the bully behind. Now they carry it home in their pocket. Mm-hmm. 
So I have a yes. great I have a great respect and far more sympathy for young people nowadays in this yes. being yeah. bullied on I mean you know I'm a comic and I'm an adult and some guy called me and he goes uh, cuz I was on a cruise ship I came back on my own dime everybody thought I had the virus nobody on my ship ever had it but they thought I did so they came after me and uh guy said you came back to this county to kill everybody and I go no I've got a list and you just made the VIP section <laughs> He didn't appreciate that. No. I, uh, well, another guy called and threatened my life. He goes, I know where you work out. I know what time you work out. I'm going to be oh. there today, and I'm going I'm to kill you. And I said, well, oh. oh, yeah. I said, listen, well, know this before you do. I've been trying to do that, kill myself for about 40 years. <laughs> and B, I don't want to die, but I'm not scared of it. So just click. Uh. Oh. oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Well, have you seen the show on Netflix called Afterlife with Ricky Gervais? I have. Okay, well, I'm watching like second episode, and his boss is trying to cheer him up. And Ricky goes, "Look, don't, don't, no, don't try to cheer me up. I'm depressed and I'm suicidal. If it gets too bad, I'll just kill myself. Sadly, it's kind of my superpower. And man, I sat up straight. I thought mm-hmm. somebody on the writing staff or Ricky has mm-hmm. chronic suicidal ideation. Well, then I see. Next episode, two guys come up to him, and two young people, and they got knives, and they want to take his wallet. And they go, he goes, what are you going to do if I don't give you my wallet? And we're going to kill you. And Ricky mm-hmm. goes, for most people, that would be an inducement to turn over my wallet. But <laughs> as luck would have it, I've been thinking about that for, you know, since my wife died. I remember that scene. That's a pretty, I mean, it, it's a very interesting show, but it's pretty dark. Yes, and I believe either Ricky or somebody on the writing staff mm-hmm. has chronic suicidal because those are thoughts I have all the time. Mm-hmm. But neurotypical people don't generally, you know. I mean, I've I have vivid imagination. I made the mistake of telling a friend of mine, another comedian, one of my daydreams, and after I got done blocking, lighting, you know, dialogue, sound bites, oh. he goes, "Man, I got to get better daydreams." Uh, <laughs> But in one of them, I go to 76 Station on the way to Portland to the airport to catch a plane. It's, you know, it's oh dark 30, and I'm getting myself a cup of coffee. Guy comes in with a gun, robs the place, puts the gun to my head, and goes, give me your money or I'll kill you. You know? <laughs> I've been trying to do that for 40 years. If I had known it was going to be on this day in this place, oh. you know, death by idiot, I would have just relaxed and waited for it to happen. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it is sort of my superpower in that way. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, I don't want to die. Uh, I'll tell you the other piece of the superpower puzzle. I People kept saying, you need to you need to read Brene Brown. I thought, how mm-hmm. good could she be? So mm-hmm. I bought the book on vulnerability. Well, mm-hmm. I realized that halfway through, oh, my God, vulnerability is my superpower. Because I get up on stage and I bare my soul. And I mm-hmm. get choked up. And the second thing she said, and I've said it in many different ways, but she said it best. And now I quote her talking about. Like, you know, people want to talk about their issues, their their mental health struggles. And she said, I'm so comfortable in my dark, I have no trouble spending time with you and yours. Mm-hmm. And that's that's how I feel. I said, I'm so comfortable in my... I see. Yeah, so it's... Mm-hmm. it's yeah. I, uh, a friend of mine said at one point, Somebody was telling him about his struggles with the mental illness and, you know, how bad it had gotten. And then apologized for burdening him with it. And he was like, man, I'd rather sit here for three or four hours and and be here for you and listen to you talk about this than spend 30 minutes in a church somewhere listening to your eulogy. Uh-huh. Mm. So you I- know, it's so interesting because I've had this talk with other therapists. And um, it's really hard to be friends with people who don't. Um, understand and 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 I guess in some weird way surround themselves with speaking about the most darkness that anyone can feel. You know, we do it a lot. We do it every day. And so to go to a cocktail party or to have a friendship that feels very superficial and it's about maybe things and not feelings or ideas is almost painful. It's like I just can't talk about something this superficial um, when the you know th- there's so much depth there and it's so much more real and it's so much more about the human experience. And one of the things we we say in the book is you need a pit crew. You mm-hmm. need people to surround yourself with people who 
who know what you're living with and are, you know, are there for you and you can have real conversations. Um, the guy that I work out with is a retired veterinarian and he has an idiopathic form of Parkinson's. Oh. There's no, no reason he should have it. And he's he, a very slow moving, uh, fortunately, uh, case of it. But, but we can talk freely about his and joke actually about his Parkinson's. He jokes about it. I joke about it. And also, he knows that I live with depression, thoughts of suicide. So one day he said to me, how are you doing? I said, I'm wretchedly depressed without missing a beat. Mm-hmm. And he goes, what does that look like? I said, well, remember when you were a young guy, you're like 18 years old, and every other thought you had was about sex? He goes, yeah. Mm-hmm. What's every other thought for you now? It's 63. Netflix. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Going back to bed and binge mm-hmm. watching Ozark. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's nice to have somebody. Now, the flip side of that, Nicole, Every now and then, I like to mess around with neuronormal people. I don't know if you ever <laughs> had this impulse, but, you know, it, it, how you doing? Oh, I'm living the dream. Great. Blah, blah, blah. Every now and then, when I'm really tired and the editor in my head goes to sleep, I got in an Uber one day after doing two three-hour suicide prevention trainings, and nice young kid, and I was locking the mirror. He goes, hey, man, how you doing? I thought, okay. I'll have a little fun <laughs> with him. I go, I'm depressed and suicidal. How about you? <laughs> Yeah, he's driving along. You can tell he's thinking. And mm. our eyes lock in the mirror again. And he goes, what am I supposed to say to that? I said, do you really want to know? He goes, yeah. I go, you're supposed to ask me if I have a plan. Uh. So he goes, uh, do you have a plan? <laughs> and then there's a pause, Nicole. And he goes, does it involve Uber? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's brilliant. Oh, goodness. But oh, sometimes you just want to, when people ask you, you just want to tell them. You know, it's, uh, but you don't want to be a flip side of that. I'm in the driveway one day last summer. I'm doing some yard work. I'm really depressed. And I'm thinking I'll tell my wife as she's going to work. And then I thought, you know what? I'm not, it's not going to make me feel any better. It's going to make her feel worse. And she, the benefit of coming out, by the way, as depressed and suicidal is that she can be there for me and we can oftentimes joke about it. For example, one of my triggers is disappointing her so or anybody whose opinion I respect, but especially her. Mm-hmm. So if I do something stupid, I'll say to her, listen, I'm sorry I did that. Are you mad? And she'll go, oh, no, I'm not mad. I'm dis- No! Uh- <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it allows us to laugh You can be playful about it. And she's not going to get blindsided mm-hmm. by my depression thing, and she's done something wrong. If she knows I'm cycling down, mm-hmm. then she knows whatever I, you know, if I, if I appear grumpy, it's not her. That's real intimacy, by the way, to know somebody so well that you have a special language, which is that, you know, that disappointed, that, yeah. that you guys know that's your secret language of, yep, listen, we both know that's my trigger, and we can be playful about it. I mean, that's really a beautiful thing. Well, it, 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 it came about because I finally came out as mm-hmm. depressed. But, you know, I, I got an email from a guy in Switzerland about a month ago, and he, was, he is depressed. He's 42, lovely wife darling eight-year-old daughter good job but he sent me an email and he said frank you know i i just saw your ted talk your first ted talk he goes i've been depressed i said i i can't remember the last time i was happy and i thought i was all alone and i stumbled across your ted talk and i realized for the first time ever that i'm not alone and but he has not told his wife or anybody he works with so i encourage him i said look when the time comes when you are comfortable doing it i think you will find you know if you share with people that you trust these things it will it will ease your burden a bit mm-hmm. uh, so hopefully he that's the power of a ted talk is that you know somebody on the other side of the world oh lo- sure logs on uh, by the way and when you ask me what would i do if somebody suspected their child or cousin or brother or spouse was depressed i normally suggest the person who is concerned sit down and watch my first tedx with that person you're concerned about uh-huh. watch them watching me because i'm very upfront about you know why my how my brain works and why it works that way and how close i came and mm-hmm. a friend of mine he did that with his wife he's watching her watching me and 
He goes, Frank, it was amazing. He goes, she turns to me when she'd been very per, she'd never told anybody outside of the family she lived with depression. She said to him, okay, A, I didn't know anybody talked about that out loud. B, I never knew anybody talked about that out loud on TEDx stages mm. Mm. in front of God in the world. And so uh, uh, we do a little coffee clatch, myself and half a dozen people who, not always six of us, but we get together about once a month, have a cup of coffee. And forgive me, we call it the crazy coffee clatch. And we go in and we all take off our game faces for an hour. Mm-hmm. And we just we're just ourselves, and we can say those dark things to each other that makes every now and then somebody behind us will hear us say something mm-hmm. and go, "Oh, excuse me, just one second. <laughs> were you guys talking about somebody jumped off a ten-story building and did one of you just say ten stories is not enough? I'd go at least fifteen. Because <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know you could you could actually survive ten stories. I, I go, oh. yeah. I looked at him. I go, yeah, man. You need to hit ter- terminal velocity is, is the term you're looking for. Oh goodness, but. Goodness. My dark, my friends who are mentally ill, you know that they're not uncomfortable by that. And then at the end of the hour, we put our game faces back on, and we go back out in the world. I met a guy, an osteopathic anesthesiologist who lives with chronic suicidal ideation. He goes, Frank, yeah, I put my game face on, but some days by the end of the day, it's like wax. I can feel it beginning to sag a bit. I know I know I'm cycling down if I can you know I can uh, and the way he let his staff know by the way and I'm proud of him for doing this every morning he used to go in there's a whiteboard there and they where they do the exams and he would put a smiley face on the whiteboard and one morning he went in and instead of a smiley face he put the eyes and then a straight line uh-huh well his assistant comes in takes one look at the board and goes okay what's wrong mm-hmm. so there's mm-hmm. his hint Yes. Some, sometimes verbal, sometimes well, he's being non. being honest. Yeah. yeah. And he said, you know, Frank, it, it made all the difference. She picked up on it immediately. Mm-hmm. And so um, he's working his way through that. You know, and he's, he's in process now. He was keeping it to himself up to that point. For whatever reason, he drew a straight line, and she picked up on it immediately. That's the, That sounds like it was a really important first step. Frank, tell Tell my audience, tell our audience where they can find out more about you because I am sure they will want to uh, find out more about your TEDx and more about your your really beautiful work with suicide prevention. Give us give us some uh, websites. Okay, the website is the Mental mm-hmm. Health Comedian, or as we say okay. down south, the Mental Health Comedian. <laughs> and okay. by the way, Nicole, if you go there, yeah, and you, and you give me an email address. Yeah. You can download the unabridged audio book, the first book, uh, Guts, Grit, and the Grind, a men's mental mechanics manual. I, I voice it, and the entire thing is there, and you get an MP3 in exchange. Love it. Yeah, Love it. So you don't have to pay a dime. Um, and then I've got a, I've got a, uh, I coach TEDx. Uh, it's yourtedxcoach.com. Oh. Your TEDx coach. And if you go there, for your email address, you get a PDF, the six things you can do to kill your chances of getting a TEDx. Thanks, Nicole. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share it with some of your friends. I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at NicoleChristina.com. It's no secret that everyone's feeling pretty restless and unsettled right now. Our lives are upside down and the future is feeling pretty uncertain. But if you're anything like me, organizing my stuff can help me feel a little calmer. It's something I can do to help me feel a little more in control and in charge of my own life. If you think decluttering could help you feel better and you could use a little assistance with that, check out the online course I've developed with professional organizer and designer Carrie Luteran. It's called Too Much Stuff. And Too Much Stuff is different from other courses or articles or guidance you may have used. We give you clear steps to deal with the clutter and the tools to help you face the overwhelming feelings and the emotions that come up when we're going through our clutter. And a lot of those emotions are just feeling anxious or guilty or just basically flooded with a lot of different 
confusing feelings. The course is really practical. It's realistic. The lessons are short and punchy, and they're really manageable. We're not trying to set you up for some long exploratory you know, super in-depth, uh, burdensome experience. We want something really helpful for you right now. We all need help with our anxiety. So being surrounded by more calm and less chaos can really help. So now's a good time to clear out the clutter so we can focus on what's really important in our lives. So find out more at zestfulaging.com. You'll see more about this under the web courses tab. If you have any questions, just shoot me an email at zestfulaging at gmail.com. Thanks so much. And stay tuned next week for another interview with a fascinating and inspiring guest. (laughs) 